Hi, good afternoon, and thank you for joining this breakout session on common conditions and emergencies in ophthalmology. I'm Dr. Dave Klink. I'm an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Liberty University College of Osteopathic Medicine. I did my training in ophthalmology at Bethesda Naval Hospital and subsequently did fellowships in neuro-ophthalmology and pediatric ophthalmology. And that's what I look like on a, on a good day. I've been on several short-term mission trips to Lesotho, Guatemala, and Kenya, and hope to share with you today some things commonly seen in practices both in the United States and overseas, uh, and start with a few things that are most prominently seen overseas. These are the learning objectives for the talk today. Uh, describe ocular conditions seen primarily in developing countries. List common pathological conditions of the eyelids and describe their treatment. Understand the evaluation and treatment of a patient with corneal abrasion or ulcer. Describe the differential diagnosis and treatment of the red eye. And understand neurologic causes of pupillary and ocular motility abnormalities. I do not have any financial interest in any products or procedures discussed in this lecture. I want to start out today with a few conditions that are seen almost exclusively in developing countries. And those are trachoma, onchocerciasis, vitamin A deficiency, and then I want to talk about vernal conjunctivitis. First, I want to make an acknowledgement. This is a very diverse audience to speak to about a topic like this. There's going to be significant variation in capabilities, support referral capabilities of the people who are listening to this organization. The photograph over here on the left is of one of the eye operating rooms at Tenwick Hospital in Kenya. They have a phenomenal program. Dr. Roberts has built an exceptional eye clinic there, and they have the ability to do complicated eye surgeries, almost the equal of any academic center in the United States. And this is a picture on the right of me examining the eyes of a young boy in a hut in Lesotho. Obviously, our capabilities in these two settings are very different. I'll talk about the standard treatment for all of these conditions, understanding that those may not be available to everybody listening to this presentation. So we're going to start with trachoma. Trachoma is the leading cause of preventable blindness in the world. The World Health Organization estimates that about 2 million people have been blinded worldwide. Now, some estimates range as high as 2.5 million and between 25 and 80 million active infections, depending upon the source that you look at. It's most common in the Middle East, Northern and Sub-Saharan Africa, and Southern Asia and China, with about 85% of cases occurring in Africa. It's caused by the bacterium Chlamydia trachomatis, and is spread by contact with secretions from the eyes and nose of the infected person. It's very prominent amongst children because of their typically dirty faces and because of the close contact that they have with each other and with their parents, particularly their mothers in most of these countries. It can also be spread by fomites such as towels, clothing, hands, um, flying insects, specifically flies, are a significant source of transmission. The symptoms include itching, discharge from the eyes, light sensitivity or photophobia, uh, and outright pain. Now, signs are fairly specific. Uh, you have an inflammation that's primarily manifested by these follicles 
that you see here on the undersurface of the lid over the tarsal conjunctiva. And these follicles are bumps containing lymphocytes under the upper eyelid. This causes swelling of the upper eyelid and eventually with repeated infections or chronic infection can cause eyelid scarring. We see lines form uh, horizontal white lines of scarring that are called ARLTS lines, A-R-L-T-S. Ultimately, this can result in scarring of the back surface of the lid and turning in of the lid margin so that the eyelashes contact the cornea and this is very very irritating it can cause epithelial breakdown and it can ultimately cause corneal scarring and opacity which is what limits the vision in these patients Risk factors include poor sanitation and lack of hygiene, again, lack of washing faces amongst children, lack of clean water, places where there are a lot of flies to help spread the disease, and age, most common in children between four and six years old. They transmit it readily between each other and also to their mothers. The World Health Organization has put a lot of effort into eradicating trachoma, um, and one of their strategies is the WHO SAFE strategy. Uh, the surgery to treat advanced forms of trachoma, which consists of eyelid surgery to rotate the edges of the eyelid out so that the lashes no longer contact the cornea, and in some cases, corneal transplants. Now, corneal transplants in the best of circumstances are very intensive procedures that require lots of follow-up and resources. So in many of the areas where trachoma is prominent, that's not available. Antibiotics for treatment and prevention. Facial cleanliness. Again, those kids with dirty faces tend to spread the disease quite a bit. And environmental. Water, sanitation, and fly control. In the United States, we are developed countries. You may do diagnosis by cultures, nucleic acid amplification techniques, immunofluorescence, but in most of the clinically endemic areas, the diagnosis is simply made clinically. The primary treatment is antibiotics. Again, topical tetracycline ointment or drops. These need to be administered twice a day for six weeks. So you can understand that in the setting where most of these cases occur, that's difficult to achieve. Oral azithromycin is preferred because of its effectiveness and because it can be administered in a single dose, 20 milligrams per kilogram orally one time. Azithromycin is certainly much more expensive but Pfizer has started an international donation program many years ago that has delivered many hundreds of thousands of doses to individuals. And then again, surgery in severe cases that we already mentioned, eyelid margin rotation surgeries, and in some cases, corneal transplants. The next condition that we're going to talk about is onchocerciasis or river blindness. It affects up to 25 million people worldwide with an estimated 1 to 1.2 million who are blind because of this. It's found in sub-Saharan Africa where 99% of the cases can occur, but it's also seen in South America, Mexico, and in Yemen. It's caused by onchocerca volvulus. And the disease is transmitted by black flies that live and breed near fast flowing rivers. So briefly, the life cycle of the onchocerciasis, you have the black fly that bites the host, 
which infects the host with Oncocerca larvae. The larvae form nodules in the subdermal tissues where over the course of about a year or so they mature into adult worms. The adult worms reproduce and produce microfilaria. Now the microfilaria migrate to the superficial layers of the skin and to the eye. When they migrate to the superficial layers of the skin and the host is then bitten again by another black fly, the microfilaria enter the fly and the life cycle continues to develop in the fly. The microfilaria cause an intense inflammatory response both in the skin and in the eye and specifically the death of the microfilaria releases a symbiotic bacteria Wolbachia, which causes a very intense inflammatory reaction, which is what causes most of the damage in this disease. In the skin, the microfilaria cause severe itching and granulomatous nodules form around these microfilaria and can cause significant skin atrophy and scarring. In the eye, the inflammation causes chronic sclerosing keratitis, essentially means that the cornea will scar and have neovascularization and become opaque. It can also result in uveitis, which is an inflammation inside of the eye, and also glaucoma. The primary treatment for onchocerciasis is ivermectin. Ivermectin was developed by scientists at Merck in the 1970s, and it kills the microfilaria, but not the adult worms. The typical adult dose is 150 micrograms per kilogram orally every six months. And again, the doses need to be repeated in endemic areas because people are frequently reinfected without some kind of effort to control the population of flies. Now, the treatment in those with loa loa can cause a fatal encephalitic reaction. So care needs to be exercised in areas where, where loa loa is present. Merck in the 1980s, started what they call the Mectazan, that's the trade name for ivermectin, Mectazan donation program that has donated more than 3.4 billion treatments since 1987 and from the most recent sources that I can found has committed to continue doing the donations through 2025. The next condition that I want to talk about is vitamin A deficiency, affecting about 5 million children worldwide every year, occurring primarily in Southeast Asia, India, Bangladesh, and Nepal. Now you'll remember that vitamin A is a precursor to rhodopsin, which is a photopigment found in the rods. The rods are located primarily in your peripheral retina and are responsible for night vision. As you can see, vitamin A is found in many different foods, including milk, meat, fish, liver, eggs, green leafy vegetables, yellow fruits, and red palm oil. The symptoms of vitamin A deficiency include dry eyes, blurry vision, and night blindness. The signs include xerophthalmia, which is severe dry eyes. The severe dry eye can cause corneal ulceration and melting. In the photograph to the right, you see a patient with extreme dry eye with what we call symblepharin formation, scarring between the lids and the bulbar conjunctiva, and extreme drying and epithelialization of the surface of the cornea. And again, it can also cause night blindness and retinopathy. The treatment is oral vitamin A, 10,000 to 20,000 international units daily, and in more severe cases, intramuscular vitamin A. 
The last of these four that I want to talk about is vernal keratoconjunctivitis. conjunctivitis. It isn't a perfect fit with the first three because it does occur in developed countries. It's a severe bilateral allergic inflammation affecting the conjunctiva and ocular surface, which in most developed countries can be treated with minimal long-term effects, but in the worst cases where treatment's not available can lead to long-term corneal scarring and blindness. It's most common in hot, arid, subtropical climates with exacerbations in the spring, but symptoms really persist year round. And it's most common in children and adolescents with most occurring before 10 years of age. And you can see in this young girl who I saw in Lesotho, see these gelatinous raised areas around the limbus. And if you see the picture of her whole face, you can see how, how miserable she is and how bad the eyes feel. Symptoms include photophobia, burning foreign body sensation, blurred vision to the point where these kids almost have their eyes shut all the time in the worst cases. Signs are these giant papillae which form uh, underneath the upper tarsal plate on the conjunctiva. These are kind of squarish looking flat and they're very rough and they can disrupt the surface of the cornea. They frequently have a thick mucus discharge. In cases of limbal vernal, where the process affects the limbus of the eye, you see these which are called Horner trantus dots. Horner trantus dots are filled with degenerated epithelium and eosinophils. They're gelatinous gray infiltrates in the limbus, and sometimes they can cause deficiency of stem cells along the limbus. Now the corneal epithelium grows from stem cells along the limbus. So because of the deficiency of stem cells caused by this chronic inflammation, you'll get drying and neovascularization of the cornea, which can cause opacity and blindness. The treatment of choice is topical antihistamines and topical mast cell stabilizers. And in most cases, these need to be used chronically. So one bottle typically doesn't do the trick. In severe cases, topical steroids can be used. They're best used short term and done under the supervision of an ophthalmologist. Chronic steroids used in the eyes can cause increased intraocular pressure, glaucoma is damage to the optic nerve, and cataract formation. And typically avoidance of sun, wind, and heat where possible, which obviously in most of the situations where you see this in the living situations is really not practical. On the bottom left, you can see a picture of a patient with a neovascularization of the cornea developing. You can see that if these membranes grow across the pupil, that the person won't be able to see. And this is a picture of screening school children in Lesotho inspecting their eyes for the presence of inflammation and those limbal Horner trantus dots. I'm going to transition now and talk about those conditions that are seen more commonly worldwide, but that you certainly run into in developing countries. Uh, first of which is blepharitis, and I want to bring that up because it's just so ubiquitous. You see it in so many patients. Symptoms of itching, burning, foreign body sensation, um, tearing, and crusting of the lid margins. Uh, on the sides, you can see inspissated meibomian glands, and meibomian glands, which are in the tarsal plate, and exit at the lid margins can look like swollen little yellowish bumps along the lid margin. You can get crusting, redness, and thickening of the eyelid margin as you see here. And in the most severe cases, it can cause corneal inf infiltrates, thinning, neovascularization. So it can be quite severe in some cases. 
The treatment in most cases is simply lid hygiene, having a person use warm soaks on the eyes and scrubbing the eyelid margins with the eyes closed with baby shampoo once a day and artificial tears for dry eye symptoms. Ground flaxseed or flaxseed oil has been shown to help the meibomian glands function more efficiently and empty more efficiently, so that's a fairly easy treatment in areas where that's available. And in more severe cases, either topical antibiotics or chronically tetracycline or doxycycline can be used. Now the tetracycline and doxycycline don't have their effect through the antibiotic effect, but through making the meibomian glands function more efficiently and empty more efficiently. The next common eyelid condition that I'll talk about is the hordeolum, also referred to as a sty. An external sty involves the gland of Zeiss at the lid margin, again, where the eyelashes exit, and an internal hordeolum involves an abscess of the meibomian gland. And here in this diagram, you can see the meibomian gland more posteriorly in the lid, which is located within the tarsal plate. And it's usually caused by a Staphylococcus species. The treatment is typically warm compresses for about 10 minutes, four times a day, and in most cases it will result in spontaneous draining of the sty within a couple of days. Topical antibiotics, if it's draining or if there's an associated blepharitis, and in cases where it's severe, and in some cases the eyelid can become quite red and swollen, uh, making it difficult to differentiate from a cellulitis, it's not unreasonable to consider doxycycline. In rare cases, incision and drainage may be necessary if there's no improvement on antibiotics. Moving a little bit more posteriorly in the lid is the chalazion. Remember on our previous diagram, you saw the chalazion was more posteriorly in the lid and was located within the tarsal plate. What happens is the meibomian gland becomes clawed, continues to produce those secretions, and eventually the meibomian gland ruptures inside the lid. This causes a sterile inflammatory response. It's not infectious, but it can look pretty terrible with lots of swelling and redness of the lid. It's typically precipitated in those people who have blepharitis, and that's another reason why treating blepharitis is important. Again, treatment is typically warm soaks four times a day, and for those with significant blepharitis, in addition to the soaks and the scrubs, you may want to consider one-week course of topical antibiotics. In many cases, these will resolve on their own, but they can form a chronic lipogranuloma in the eyelid, which will be a non-inflamed lump, which can actually persist for several months. And again, in those that don't go away on their own after several months, we can go ahead and consider incision and drainage. One caution in older people who tend to develop chronic and recurring Chalasia is the worry of a sebaceous cell carcinoma that can be fatal and sometimes can masquerade as a chalazion. And again, that would be a worry in a chalazion that recurs in the same location. Now our next topic is preceptal cellulitis. And you can see with a red swollen lid why sometimes a sty or a chalazion can be mistaken for that. In a preceptal cellulitis, you see the islet erythema, edema, warmth, tenderness. Now the key point here is how to differentiate a preceptal cellulitis with an orbital cellulitis, which is a deeper, more dangerous infection. In preceptal cellulitis, there's minimal or no conjunctival injection. There's no proptosis. There's no pain with eye movement. There's no restriction of eye movement. There should be no signs 
of an optic neuropathy. And again, all those things we just talked about are typically signs of a deeper orbital infection. Most of these patients can be treated with an oral antibiotic as an outpatient, but it, occasionally you need to admit patients for IV antibiotics, primarily in children who are younger than five years of age because of the risk of haemophilus influenza and also in those who don't show any improvement on outpatient antibiotics after 24 to 48 hours. So now we move on to orbital cellulitis, again, a deeper infection in the orbit. We worry about untreated orbital cellulitis because of the potential for thrombosis of the cavernous sinus, which lies directly behind the orbit. Again, you're gonna see the islet edema, erythema, warmth, tenderness. Now the differences here, well, number one, the redness is frequently limited to the area just anterior to the orbit. That's because the orbital septum, which divides the superficial eyelid tissues from the deeper orbital tissues, contains the infection. You may see conjunctival chemosis and injection, that's redness and swelling. You will frequently see pain with eye movement. You'll frequently see restricted ocular motility in more severe cases. The eye may be proptotic. The person may have decreased vision due to compression of the optic nerve and optic disc edema. So again, the differentiation between an orbital cellulitis and a preceptal cellulitis is made on those orbital signs. Orbital cellulitis is most commonly caused by an extension from the sinus, usually the ethmoidal sinus. Remember the bone that separates the ethmoid sinus from the orbit is called a lamina papyracea, literally a wall of paper. In many cases, there are fenestrations in that bone which allow easy spread of infection. These patients need to be hospitalized and placed on IV antibiotics. If it's available, CT of the orbits and sinuses to look for a subperiosteal abscess, which may need to be drained. Uh, Obviously, CBC, differential blood cultures in pediatric patients. If you have an ENT surgeon on staff, they can be a real help in helping to flush out the sinuses on a daily basis. So moving on from the eyelids and the orbits, we're gonna to come to the ocular surface. And the first thing we wanna talk about is dry eye. Again, this is a very, very common condition which you'll see in many patients. It's caused by a deficiency of tear production or deficiency in the quality of the tear film which causes it to unevenly distribute or evaporate too rapidly. Patients complain of eye redness, pain, um, sometimes mild photophobia and really a dry sensation. Many times you'll see patients who complain of tearing and actually it's caused by dry eyes. The dry eyes cause irritation that really turns on the reflex tearing. Um, so that really has to be explained to the patient so they understand why they're having the tearing and why it's necessary to treat that with artificial tears. One of the most common signs is this punctate staining with fluorescein of the inferior part of the cornea that we call SPK or superficial punctate keratitis. The treatment is with artificial tears, which I like to start the patients every one or two hours and have them slowly back off to the point where their symptoms are controlled. Many patients who buy artificial tears will only use them one or two times a day, and that's really 
insufficient. If simple lubrication is ineffective, there are several different things that can be done, most of which require the presence of an ophthalmologist. The next ocular surface issue that we're going to talk about are corneal abrasions. If anybody has ever had a corneal abrasion, you'll understand why these are kind of the kidney stone of ophthalmology because they can be very, very small and extremely, extremely painful because the corneal epithelium is very richly innervated. A corneal abrasion is a loss of the corneal epithelium, usually caused by trauma, but occasionally can occur spontaneously in those with corneal dystrophies or sometimes after refractive surgery. It causes severe pain, a foreign body sensation, tear, pain with blinking. The easiest way to diagnose these is with fluorescein staining and a blue light, which will show the fluorescence of the fluorescein collected in the area of the abrasion. Now it's important to differentiate a corneal abrasion from a corneal ulcer. In a corneal abrasion, there's no underlying corneal infiltrate. So underneath the abrasion, the cornea looks clear, not white. We typically treat abrasions with frequent antibiotic ointment or drops, and many times oral pain medicines. You can consider patching for pain control, but do this with caution. Never patch a corneal abrasion in a patient who wears contact lenses. There's a high prevalence of pseudomonas and putting pseudomonas in a warm, dark, moist environment that you cause by patching the eye can turn it into a corneal ulcer. Also, if the abrasion was caused by vegetable matter or a fingernail, you don't want to patch because of the risk of infection. And normally we see these patients back daily until the defect is resolved. Next, we're going to move on to corneal ulcers. Corneal ulcers, again, you have the lack of epithelium, the epithelial defect on the cornea, but you have the underlying whitish infiltrate of the corneal stroma. Look at the picture in the upper right hand of the screen, and you'll see that small, small corneal ulcer at about the six o'clock position. The patients will complain of moderate to severe pain, photophobia, and they may have decreased vision if the corneal ulcer is more central and if there's swelling of the cornea around it. You'll see conjunctival injection and an epithelial defect with the underlying white opacity. Ulcers are typically caused by common bacteria such as staph, strep, and pseudomonas, and less commonly by either fungal, acanthamoeba, or potentially even herpes simplex virus. This is a picture of a more central, more severe corneal ulcer. You can see the infiltrate in the center of the cornea, the hypopion inferiorly, the significant injection of the conjunctiva. And you can see in the center that sometimes these will cause the epithelium and the corneal stroma to, to liquefy and sometimes even perforate. Small peripheral ulcers can typically be treated with frequent topical antibiotics, generally fourth generation fluoroquinolones or fortified antibiotics, but, but larger, more central ulcers really need to be seen by ophthalmology and cultured prior to starting treatment, if at all possible. And remember, if there's one thing that I can leave you from talking about corneal abrasions and corneal ulcers is never, never, ever patch a corneal abrasion in a contact lens wearer or if the abrasion was caused by organic matter 
or a fingernail. Next, we're going to talk about differentiating between several different causes of red eye. The first thing I'm going to talk about is viral conjunctivitis. Again, unilateral red eye with watery discharge and frequently with a history of recent upper respiratory infection. And they'll frequently have a history of someone else at home with similar symptoms. On examination, you'll see conjunctival injection and watery discharge and frequently spread to the contralateral eye. Treatment really consists of just reassurance. Antibiotic drops won't do any good for a viral infection, but simply treating them with topical lubricating drops and reassurance and warning them to take transmission precautions with washing the eyes, not showing utensils, towels, etc. A bacterial conjunctivitis can look very similar, but typically you'll have a purulent discharge. The treatment for this is a topical antibiotic drop, usually for five to seven days, which will resolve the issue in most patients. Next, we can talk about allergic conjunctivitis. Again, red injected uncomfortable eyes. The big differentiating symptom in an allergic conjunctivitis is that itching is a very prominent symptom. The discharge is usually watery and frequently this can be seasonal and in many cases these patients will show significant chemosis or swelling of the conjunctiva treatment is typically with over-the-counter or prescription antihistamines or mast cell stabilizers which are applied topically The final cause of red eye, which I want to talk about, is herpes simplex keratitis. And the hallmark of herpes simplex keratitis is this branching dendrite that you see on the surface of the cornea with fluorescein stain. It's important to recognize this because if untreated, it can lead to long-term corneal opacity and scarring. Treatment consists of oral balcyclovir, one gram three times a day for seven to 14 days and topical trifluoridine up to nine times a day. You do not want to give steroids in these patients because the steroids will cause a rapid worsening of the herpes simplex. So in summary, the differing causes of conjunctivitis, again, viral, watery, unilateral discharge, recent upper respiratory infection, bacterial conjunctivitis, you typically see some pus or some discharge from the eye. An allergic conjunctivitis tends to be bilateral with prominent itching and watering. And the herpes simplex keratitis, you'll see the branching dendrites on the surface of the cornea and frequently vesicular lesions of herpes on the lid or on the face. Now a subconjunctival hemorrhage is sometimes confused for a conjunctivitis, but again, there's typically not the injection of the conjunctiva outside of the area where you see the blood and there's typically no discharge. Most often this is found incidentally in an older patient and may be caused by spontaneous rupture of a conjunctival vessel by a valsalva maneuver or by minor trauma. 
if there's a history of significant trauma, you need to again worry about a ruptured globe. And again, these can look very, very impressive, but they tend to clear on their own and are completely harmless to the eyes. Another problem that you may see with a patient coming in complaining of a foreign body sensation is an actual foreign body. And here you see pictures of a small foreign body on the tarsal conjunctiva underneath the upper lid, a small foreign body over the cornea, and then one near the limbus over the conjunctiva. These patients will come in complaining of a foreign body sensation, tearing in the conjunctiva is usually injected. It's crucially important in these patients to determine the mechanism of injury. If there's any metal on metal strike, grinding, power tool use, or string trimmer use, be very suspicious of a foreign body that has penetrated the eye. In the picture on the far right, you'll see a small metal wire piercing the cornea and contacting the iris and the lens. I had a patient almost identical to this after using a string trimmer in his yard and kicking up a small piece of wire which struck his eye. If you've ruled out the concern for a penetrating industry, you'll want to anesthetize the eye with topical drops and try to remove the foreign body. First, try to remove it by flushing with some fluid, irrigating solution, and many times that'll be enough. If that's unsuccessful, you can go ahead and attempt to remove with a cotton-tipped applicator, uh, typically moistened with some topical anesthetic. In most cases, that's successful. In the foreign bodies that are really recalcitrant to being removed, and frequently that can occur in small metallic particles because they have sharp edges which pierce and hold on to the tissues below, you can actually use an 18-gauge needle, hold it tangential to the eye. Do not point it in towards the eye because if the patient lurches forward, it can penetrate the eye. But if you hold it tangential to the eye, you can use it as a little spud to gently flick away that corneal foreign body. Sometimes a metallic foreign body will leave a little rustering around it in the cornea, which you need to remove with a burr. Again, after that, you treat these patients like a corneal abrasion with topical antibiotics and follow up on a daily basis until the epithelial defect is healed. Pterygia and pingecula are just elastoic areas of degeneration of the conjunctiva from ultraviolet damage and chronic irritation, most commonly seen in areas that the patients are exposed to a lot of bright sunlight, especially equatorial areas. They are generally asymptomatic, but if they cause symptoms, they can most often be treated with artificial tears. If you have a pterygia, like the one pictured in the bottom right, that's growing into the visual axis of the eyes, it may require surgery by an ophthalmologist with removal of the pterygia and a conjunctival graft, but they have a high rate of recurrence. Next, we'll talk about iritis or uveitis, which is an inflammation inside of the eye. One of the biggest symptoms of this is photophobia. The patient is really has this aching pain when they're exposed to light. The examination will reveal this limbal flush where they have the injection mostly around the limbus of the eye. And if you have the ability to do a slit lamp examination, you'll see cells and flare, which is just a smoky appearance in the anterior chamber. One of the most helpful things that I found for diagnosing an iritis in a situation where you don't have a slit lamp is by shining a light in the contralateral eye. 
again, people with surface abnormalities of the eye, dry eyes, um, blepharitis may have photophobia if you shine the light in the affected eye. If you shine the light in the contralateral eye and the affected eye hurts, that's a good indication of iritis because the pain is caused by constriction of the pupil. Again, the iris is part of the uvea and that's where the inflammation is. Treatment is typically with topical steroids and some kind of cycloplegic agent. And again, these patients are best referred to an ophthalmologist where that is available. Hyphema is the pre presence of blood or potentially a blood clot in the anterior chamber, most often caused by blood trauma. There's a separation of the iris where it joins the ciliary body and that separation can cause tearing and bleeding. If the anterior chamber is completely full of blood, the eye will look black, the, the area underneath the cornea will look black, and we call that an eight ball hyphema. Complications with hyphema can include increase in interocular pressure causing severe pain and potentially damage to the optic nerve. The most worrisome time for rebleeding occurs between 72 and 96 hours as the clot retracts. And again, these patients are best referred to an ophthalmologist where one is available. There's a higher rate of complications in patients with sickle cell disease and with sickle cell trait. Treatment typically requires limiting the activity, in some cases hospitalization, daily follow-up, uh, medical treatment of any increased interocular pressure in the most severe cases where the pressure is extremely high and can't be brought down by drops, a surgery to wash out the clot from the anterior chamber. We're going to finish up and wrap things up talking about some different neurological conditions that can affect the eye. And we're going to talk about anisocoria and its different causes, and then talk about cranial nerve palsies that affect the eye movements. So anisocoria is a difference in size between the two pupils. About 20 to 30% of the normal population that you see walking down the street any day will have a little bit of normal anisocoria, usually less than a half a millimeter. Physiologic anisocoria can be variable throughout the day and can even switch sides. Sometimes we see it more pronounced in those with a history of migraines. And again, one of the hallmarks of physiologic anisocoria is that it can be variable throughout the day. The bad things that can cause anisocoria tend to cause a fixed difference between the pupils. The second type of anisocoria we're going to talk about is anisocoria where the larger pupil does not react well to light. It can react somewhat, but not normally. And remember, the thing we're worrying about here is primarily a posterior communicating artery aneurysm because that's the one thing here that can potentially kill your patient. If you'll remember, the parasympathetic fibers that cause the pupil to constrict run on the outside of the third nerve. The third nerve runs right next to the area where the posterior communicating artery joins the internal carotid artery, and that's an area that's particularly susceptible to aneurysm formation. You want to look for other signs of cranial nerve 3 involvement, and if you're suspicious for a posterior communicating artery aneurysm, MRI and MRA, again, where available. Other etiologies of a large pupil that doesn't react well to light would be an iris sphincter trauma, pharmacologic dilation of the pupil in case a person has been exposed to some uh, 
plant material like jimson weed or some pharmacologic agent that dilates the eyes, particularly the scopolamine patches that people use for seasickness and air sickness. They don't wash their hands well and touch the eye. They'll get a dilated pupil and also an 80s pupil, which is a benign segmental parasympathetic denervation caused by an inflammation in the ciliary ganglion. But again, any anisocoria that doesn't react well to light with other signs of third nerve involvement, worry about a posterior communicating artery aneurysm. And the last type of anisocoria I'm going to talk about is anisocoria, where the smaller pupil does not dilate well. And what we're worried about here is a Horner syndrome. Horner syndrome is a sympathetic denervation of the pupil and consists of the triad of ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis, or lack of sweating on one side of the face. The sympathetic supply from the pupil runs from the hypothalamus down through the brainstem and cervical spinal cord, exits the spinal cord to the ciliospinal center of budge, drapes over the apex of the lung, joins the cervical sympathetic chain at the inferior cervical ganglion, exits at the superior cervical ganglion, runs up with the carotid artery, jumps off into the cavernous sinus, and then enters the orbit. So as you can see, there's a lot of fairly crowded neurologic territory where lesions can occur that can cause a Horner syndrome. There's a lot of different etiologies, uh, hypothalamic lesions, brainstem lesions, spinal cord, pancose tumors of the lung, carotid dissection, neck and cavernous sinus tumors, and in children, particularly metastatic neuroblastoma. These are all concerns in someone who has a new onset of a Horner syndrome. If you see a patient who has had a Horner's, who has a Horner's and has been there for years, and it's unchanged, most likely that's congenital Horner's and is frequently caused by birth trauma. And the final thing that we'll talk about today is cranial nerve palsies that affect the eye, those that affect ocular motility, the third, fourth, and sixth nerves, and also the seventh nerve, because that can have significant effects on the eye. These photographs show a complete third nerve palsy in this patient. If you look at the center diagram of the cross, you'll notice that the lid is elevated by someone holding it because the lid is totic and that the involved right eye is out and down. If you look at the picture above that center picture, you'll see that the right eye does not elevate well because of involvement of the superior rectus. If you look at the picture below the center, the eye doesn't depress well because of involvement of the inferior rectus. If you look at the picture to your left, the patient's right, you'll notice that abduction, abduction of that eye is normal because the sixth nerve is uninvolved, but the eye does not adduct well that you will see on the picture located to the left. So again, the third nerve innervates the superior rectus, inferior rectus, medial rectus, inferior oblique, and also the levator and can involve any of those muscles. In a patient with binocular vision, a third cranial nerve palsy will cause a binocular 
diplopia, which can be very variable depending upon your position of gaze. There's several different etiologies of all these cranial nerve palsies, microvascular in those who have vascular risk factors and are over 50, hypertension, diabetes, tumors, uh, brainstem lesions, infection, inflammation, trauma, demyelination, and the thing you wanna specifically worry about in a third nerve palsy, which we talked about under anisocoria, was the aneurysmal, aneurysmal compression, which again is that posterior communicating artery aneurysm. Again, the only cranial nerve third palsies that you can feel comfortable watching are those that are essentially complete with complete ptosis and limitation of up gaze, down gaze, and adduction that have sparing of the pupil. It's very difficult for compression, compressive lesion to really affect all of the other actions of the third nerve and not affect the pupillary fibers which run on the outside. But for all other third nerve palsies, you need to worry about a posterior communicating artery and if it is available, refer them for neuroimaging. Next, we'll talk about the fourth cranial nerve palsy. Remember that the fourth cranial nerve innervates the superior oblique, which has a depressing and intorting effect on the eye, so that when the fourth nerve is palsied, the involved eye will be hypertrophic. Looking at the picture on the bottom left, the hypertrophia becomes worse as the involved eye moves into adduction or gaze away from the side of the involvement. That's because in adduction, the superior oblique is the primary depressor of the eye. The inferior oblique is the primary elevator of the eye. You have the unopposed action of the inferior oblique. So when moving into adduction, that eye tends to shoot up. And the hypertropia also becomes worse when the head tilts toward the side of the involvement. So what you will typically see in a patient is like this young man you see in this picture, the head is tilted away and the face is turned away from the side of the involvement. That makes the palsy easier to control and makes it easier to fuse and avoid double vision. The cranial nerve four is the only cranial nerve that enters the brainstem dorsally. It has a very long intracranial course. It's a very small nerve. This makes it very susceptible to trauma, even very mild head trauma. And many times we'll see a cranial nerve palsy in someone that's been there for a long time, and we presume it may be due to birth trauma and that it's congenital. So along with all of the other etiology of cranial nerve palsies, you specifically want to think of congenital causes in patients with cranial nerve four palsies or trauma. One of your biggest clues to the fact that it may be congenital or at least it has been there for a long time is to look at old photographs and look for a head tilt in old photographs. So if somebody comes in with a cranial nerve four palsy, they have a photograph that's 10 years old that you can see where they have the same head tilt, you can really alleviate your worries about acute causes of a fourth nerve palsy. If you have the acute onset of a cranial nerve palsy and no history of trauma, you may wish to think about doing MRI or evaluating the patient for MS. The last cranial nerve that causes ocular motility issues that we'll talk about is the cranial nerve six palsy. Remember the six nerve abducts the eye, so if that nerve is weak, the eye tends to turn in. 
The patient is usually esotropic in primary position, but as you see in the photograph on the body, sometimes they'll adopt a head turn so that they can fuse with the two eyes and avoid double vision. And again, in a cranial six nerve palsy, the eye does not abduct well, so the deviation is going to become worse in the direction of the side of the palsy. So again, a cranial nerve palsy causes an esotropia and horizontal binocular diplopia that's worse with gaze towards the side of involvement. Along with the other etiologies of all cranial nerve palsies, with a cranial nerve six palsy, you specifically want to worry about increased intracranial pressure. The reason is that the sixth cranial nerve enters the brainstem at the pontomedullary junction, climbs up the clivus, and then enters the cavernous sinus. Where it's bound to the clivus, downward pressure from increased intracranial pressure makes it susceptible to a palsy. You may frequently see cranial nerve six palsies in patients with pseudotumor cerebri. In those who are over age 50 with vasculopathic risk factors and an otherwise normal examination, you can watch them and don't consider neuroimaging unless there's no resolution for until two or three months. You certainly want to consider neuroimaging sooner for those who are younger than 50 who have no vasculopathic risk factors and if they have any other abnormalities on their general medical or neurologic examination. All right, we're going to go ahead and finish up with seventh cranial nerve palsies. Remember that the upper face rece receives bilateral supranuclear innervation, where the lower face receives only contralateral supranuclear innervation. Therefore, a supranuclear lesion will cause a contralateral lower face palsy also, as you see in the right side of the diagram, and a nuclear or peripheral facial nerve palsy will cause a hemifacial palsy. Seventh nerve palsies can cause exposure of the eye because of the inability to close the lid. And in many cases, this can cause exposure and breakdown of the cornea. This is especially worrisome if you have a five associated with a seventh nerve palsy, because if you lose the ability to close the eye along with loss of sensation, that puts the eye at a really significant risk. These patients require aggressive lubrication, typically with ointment several times a day. You may need to tape the eye shut at nighttime, or in the most severe cases, you may need to perform a lateral tarsorophy, which is a procedure where you sew the lateral portion of the upper and lower lid together to narrow the interpalpebral fissure and reduce the exposure. Thank you for attention. I realize this was a whirlwind tour of a lot of different ophthalmological conditions. It was designed to make you aware of the many different things that you may see commonly in a primary care practice. And we'll go ahead and open it up for questions. Thank you.